Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Church London. You're listening to a message given on a Sunday morning. If you'd like to know more about us and the life of the church, please visit trinitychurchlondon.com. We are starting off a, a long-ish series looking at the letter from James. And the end of last year, we felt the Lord talk to us about wanting to forge a new work in our lives together as a community, forge us together and also forge our faith. And as we sat and prayed and talked through what we could do in terms of teaching off the back of that, we landed on the book of James because James is a highly practical book. It's probably a collection of sermons that he gathered together. And in, in James, it has more imperatives, more commands than any other book in the Bible. This is a book about how to work out your faith, what it looks like in real life. Hence the name of this teaching series. And so today I want to, do to give a, a set the scene for us and then look at one of what is going to be one of the mega themes throughout this, this letter. James was the, the half brother of Jesus. And we're told in the Gospels that he did not believe in Jesus while he was alive. It took his own brother's death and resurrection and then ascension to the right hand of the father before he finally agreed with what everything Jesus said. He said, OK, now I believe that Jesus is who he said. I mean, if you can persuade your half brother that you are God and to worship him, you know, there is some validity in what's going on. And Jesus, uh, James, the half brother of Jesus, he is in Jerusalem, part of the church there, the first church that grew to be a large church of thousands of thousands, became the pastor of this church in Jerusalem. Peter moves on. He was the first leader of the church. Then James takes over pastoral leadership of the community in Jerusalem. And when James was pastoring the church, he pastored the church through an extraordinarily difficult time. It was the epicenter of persecution for Christians, not only by the Jews, but by the Romans. This was the very heart of where Christians were being killed for their faith. This was a church that was used to having family members being killed and stoned because they said that they agree with Jesus, that he is the Lord of all things. They also, he writing to uh, the, what we're told at the beginning of this letter, the diaspora, that is those who are spread out, those who are exiles in a foreign land, those who are trying to make their way where their language is not their first language, where they are viewed as second class citizens with all of the complications and all the insecurities that that comes with. He was writing to people who were trying to find a homeland in a foreign land. And he was also writing what we now know in history with a huge time of famine. That when James was pastoring this church, the church was struggling for food and for finances. That actually, it was this, this was like there was no welfare state over this time. So if there's no food, there is no food. And so he was writing to people who knew what a life of trial looked like. Does anyone know what a life of trials looks like? Anyone? What about various trials? Because James, he says, when you meet trials of various kinds. That is multicolored, multiformed, various times. Trials like London buses that come three at a time when you think I'd only one and then another and then another until you want to just tap out. You think James knows that trials are part of life and he is pastoring to people who know that trials are a part of life. Difficulties pressure that comes upon us he doesn't say if trials come upon your life he says when if you're not going through difficulties right now you can guarantee that around the corner that trial is coming you weren't expecting it but it's coming into your life. 
James writes into this situation and James has a very unique perspective on difficulties and trials. He doesn't say like, okay, stoically, chin up, grin and bear it, you can make it. He doesn't kind of teach just like, you know, if, if you just... Equally, he doesn't try and find the quickest way of escape out of this, or he doesn't try and withdraw your desires like an Eastern philosophy. If I could just withdraw my desires from this world, then maybe I can make it through. James has a very unique take when you come into trials. And he says this, the very start of his letter, and I think he must be from Yorkshire or something, because he is so blunt and to the point. He's writing to people who are actually suffering. This isn't like a theological treatise. These people who are hungry, family members being killed, struggling in a foreign land, and he writes, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. I was chatting with a theologian brother recently, Marcio, and he, on Friday, and he, said, and he said to me, do you ever read the Bible? And you think, oh, shut up. <laughs> Anyone ever read the Bible like that? You're like, James, give it a rest. <laughs> You're like, like, if you really go through dark trials, that is, that's like a slap in the face. How, how can James teach you to count it all joy when you're actually going through things that hurt? The first thing that James is not doing is that when, difficult, when difficulties come into your life, you're not supposed to like dance a jig. You know, like, oh, my boyfriend's broken up with me, my girlfriend's broken up with me, I'm just going to dance home because I'm so happy. Or like, I've just lost my job, I'm not supposed to like throw my hat in the air. We know that because Jesus, when he faced the tomb of his, his friend Lazarus, what did he do? He didn't dance a jig out of joy. What did we told? He wept bitter tears in the original kind of angry tears at what was going on. So we know that it's not just the only emotion you're supposed to feel when difficulties come. It's this like happy, dancey, joyy feeling, charismatic, clap my hands. But what he is saying is that when difficulties come, there is a kind of joy. And one theologian, Douglas Moo, he says a pure kind of joy. He's talking about a purity and intensity. There is a joy that can come out of suffering when you are a Christian. So that so there may be many different emotions when you go through difficulties, good emotions and bad emotions, holy emotions and sinful emotions. All of these things might arise in your life. But in the very center of that and what can grow is this source of joy in your life that will grow and grow and grow and actually pervade every other emotion that you go through to such a degree that the joy can burn off sinful emotions and it will pervade all of the holy emotions that you may go through. Because we all go through times of grief, grief and sadness and loneliness. And they are real human emotions. Sometimes godly, good emotions. But what does Paul say? He says we are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. So that we don't grieve like those who are without hope, but we grieve like those who have the assurance of life 
ever after so that when you do feel lonely there is this pervading joy that undergirds it and fills you with hope that when you do feel loneliness there is this joy that pervades that loneliness that gives you a sense of hope for the future that when you do go through physical trials you go through ill health and you're in hospital again when you're going through marital tensions with relational breakdown when you go through these moments there is this deep down joy that pervades everything that you you are going through it's a, it's a it's a very unique way of looking at trials James says and he's not like writing from an ivory tower he says there is joy to be found in the trial what he says is that you need to count this so he starts the very the very start of his letter is this this idea of you've got to use your mind this is a considering counting regarding taking a mental assessment of the situation he says don't listen to your emotions first we're in a culture aren't we that is so bound up in our emotions if i feel this emotion it must be the reality of what is going on that's basically the thing and if you deny my emotions you are denying me that's not how to walk as a christian or i just think very practically very helpfully it's not a helpful way of living of listening to your emotions we've got to talk to our emotions and james says Count it, consider it, think it, reckon it, use your mind. Because when trials come along, it's like those like, you know, if you've seen boxers, you know, they like those punch bags. Your emotions are like a punch bag. You know, a trial comes along, you get bopped in the emotions and you wobble, don't you? Anyone like felt wobbled by things in life? Anyone? Come on, someone testify with me. <laughs> All right, AJ, yeah. And we'll feel that you're like, okay, you get an email, boom, and your emotions are like, whoa, what's going on? You go through a conversation, you leave it, and your emotions are shook. And our culture is always telling us, listen to this, what's going on? Is there anger? It must be righteous anger. Is there upset? You must be righteously upset about this. And, you, and we listen, but James says, no, you count. So you override your emotions by thinking. So that when the trials do come into your life, what happens is that the kind of perspective gets lost. I know everyone felt this. Like, if you go through something that is really difficult, that kind of becomes the centre of everything in your life. You're like, you do other things, but you're still aware that your emotional gravitation is around that thing. And you keep rebounding back to that thing and your life closes in. What happens is you begin to lose perspective on the largeness and the beauty of life around you, on God himself, on the, on the, the story that we're living. In. And everything becomes revolved around this thing. And if we're not careful, we get tighter and tighter and tighter into this problem so that we can't see anything else. And what James says is that you need to count, you need to use your mind so to broaden your, your perspective and lead yourself out into a place of joy. This very word here, count, is literally the same word when it's used in the noun form for leaders in the New Testament. So in Hebrews 13, it's the same word used for, for leaders and it talks about the leaders of the church, it's, which I think is a fascinating insight into what it is to be a leader, to use your mind where other people might be falling apart emotionally is to take a considered assessment of what's going on to use your mind to see a way out of this situation 
But when it comes to us, I think what we have is this truth that when we are in moments of trial and difficulty, we need to use our mind to lead ourselves into a place of joy. That it is our mind that's going to take us there. Our emotions is not going to take us there. Let me listen to my emotions about how I'm feeling. Okay, I want to go to bed. All right, fine. (laughs) Maybe let me recount some of the truth of the gospel and the ways in which Jesus loves me. Maybe I could find a pathway to joy. So James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. I had to do this the other week and I just sat down. And I just took my journal out and I was like, there are some pressures in my life. So I just got my journal out and I just started writing. I didn't have the Bible open. I just started writing reasons to find perspective in this time. I just, I didn't, I just stopped. 17 reasons. Because I knew that my emotions were playing with me. My emotions were not helping me in the situation. I needed to gain some perspective on everything that was happening. So all that I knew I'd read in the Bible, everything that I could think about practically, I just wrote, 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 trying to take a step back so that I can see the, the bigger picture. And this is what James is doing for us in this, in this passage. The, book, the, the, the letter from James is really bookended with teaching about suffering and ends with teaching about suffering. So we've got two weeks in this first passage that Jennifer read for us. And what I want to do for us is really just for a few moments is in this morning is, is count. It's all joy for a few moments and, and how we can do that. I want us to think for a moment and just some of you, you know, like just recount some of the pressures in your life. Because I think we all have some pressures in our life, don't we? If you don't have any pressures... Come pray for us, you know. <laughs> we, need, we need some there's some counting to happen. So there are three things that I want to do just from this passage. There are, there are others, but today I want to do three things. Hopefully to lead us to a place of joy where you, where you can find it so that something can grow in your heart that will change and invade every aspect of your life. So then other people look on and they see you suffering as a Christian, they notice something different. Because joy is not about your circumstances. Joy in the Bible comes from another source that is not your life. Joy in the Bible comes from a source that is from outside of your life. So that other people look on and say your life should leave you crushed and despairing and yet you seem to have this sense of peace and stability and poise and joy in your life. How is it so? He says, not because of my life, it's because of Jesus Christ and who he is. And so we want to display something differently through our life. If we are to see the glory of God known across London, it is going to be through Christians, us, declaring with our lives how we carry ourselves that there is a source beyond this world whose name is Jesus and he provides joy in my heart. So three things, just thoughts for you to think this week. The first thing is this, through trials, God is is growing you. 
God is doing something in your life that matters. That is meaningful, that has purpose. If, 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 if we lived in a life that was just started at the very beginning by random circumstances without a personal creator God, and if we are, as some scientists say, in this process of essentially imploding as a universe and then there is nothing beyond it, if that is the worldview that we live in, that everything eventually becomes to naught, then there is no meaning to be found in suffering because everything turns to zero and no one's giving account for anything. But if the universe was created by a personal being who created everything out of this overflow of joy and love and who is leading a story of history to completion in a glorification in Revelation that we're told where there is an eternity beyond this life that declares that everything that happens in this world matters, then it is possible to find some meaning in your suffering because who you become today has an eternal impact. Who you are becoming in Christ Jesus matters not just in this life, but in the life to come. Paul was reflecting on suffering and he wrote this in Romans 8. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he, Jesus Christ, might become the firstborn amongst many so why does god call us to become christ he calls us so that you might be conformed into the image of jesus christ into his character into his nature that you might reflect that to the world around you because that is what matters and will come through into eternity and this is what james says he says count it all joy my brothers and my sisters it's called it's like guys it's like everyone when you meet trials of various kinds for this is the reason you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing so take joy because there is character being formed in you let me just just run through these things that he says he says you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness it's this idea that you are someone who, when everyone else falls apart, are able to remain standing. It's this idea that when everyone else runs, you have the ability and the strength to stay put and remain when it's needed. He contrasts this in verse 5. He says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, the opposite of remaining steadfast that is driven and tossed by the wind. Or someone who's just buffeted all the time and has no stability in life. Someone says something and they're not for a day. A circumstance comes and they're out for a week. They can't cope. They're continually buffeted backwards and forwards. For this person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Like I say again, he's probably from Yorkshire. He doesn't pull his punctures. He's like, he bobs it on the nose when he needs to. The opposite is you remain steadfast. When you go through trials, there is this possibility, this potency in the trial to produce something of strength within your character. 
You meet people, I think, who have gone through stuff in life and nothing really seems to phase them. Have you met them? You think that it's slightly old and you think, you go through these things and yet there is this kind of depth to you and this stability to you that life does punch you in the emotions, but you just seem to hold it and remain steadfast. A few weeks back, I got um, part of Regions Beyond the Network of Churches. I got news through of someone I haven't met before called Pastor Mafiri. I don't know if we got the photo up. He's pastoring a church in a small village called Bweju in Zanzibar. It's a small island off the east coast of Africa. This is Pastor Mafiri and his children. That's his wife just in front of him on the right hand side of the picture. They're a godly family because one of them's wearing a Chelsea shirt at the far corner. <laughs> Carabelle Cup. Come on. Sorry, Grant. The God, well, yeah. <laughs> this is Pastor Mafiri on the left. And, um, uh, oh gosh, I've forgotten his name. I've been praying for him recently. Anyway, it's dropped out of my mind. Um, this guy lives in uh, Tanzania and he's helping. Pastor Mafiri, he had his home attacked by Muslims. Um, and his home was burnt. He was attacked with a machete with his children. The church was burnt, Bibles were burnt, and uh, it's just some of the photos that were sent through on the WhatsApp. Um, this is the church that they are now living in, in the woods. So this is where they're now living because they don't have a home. And the news got through to, can you pray for these guys? Because their response was this. I mean, it's a small place if you, if you Google it. It's a, it's a small island. There's not many places you can go and hide. But his response was this, we're, we're going to stay. And could you pray that the word and the Holy Spirit would empower us to continue to witness about Jesus? With the same people who attacked them with machetes and burned down their home around the corner, they're remaining steadfast. This, this is not produced overnight, this kind of character. This is produced in a couple in a family like this over years of walking with Jesus through difficulties and trials so that when moments like this do come, they can say, and here I stand. Amen. Here I remain to see the love of Christ known in this community. They've actually asked us, the, the, the network, to pray. So while they're up, can we just pray for them for a moment? Father, we thank you for this family. We thank you for Pastor Mafiri. We thank you for his wife. We thank you for his children. Thank you for the demonstration of godly character and this desire to remain in the same place where they've been attacked. And Father, they've asked to be strengthened by the word and by the Holy Spirit. And so we pray that you would do just that. And may your light and your love shine through this family so that those who have attacked them in the past might see the joy that James talks about shining from their life. And may their steadfastness and the kindness that they demonstrate lead the attackers to repentance and trust in our Saviour Jesus Christ. Bless this family, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Steadfastness is produced. He also says this, and let steadfastness have its full effect. So steadfastness will in turn produce something that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing.
The word here for perfect is teleos, which is where if you're a part of a telos group, where we get this idea from. It's not that if you become a Christian, that you will become sinless and, and perfect, like a brand new pair of trainers, you know, and it's like crystal clean, you know, you don't want to even take them out of the box or like a brand new journal that you don't want to write in. Just, it's not that kind of, this is a fullness of character. This is the fullness of Jesus Christ bearing witness to others through your life. He says that you may not lack anything. Didn't want to, I want to be someone who doesn't lack anything. Someone has the resources. I know where to turn to in the Bible. I know how to pray when difficult times. I know what to do. I, I know I have the mental, emotional resources when difficult times come because there is a completeness, there is a maturity in me when the life just comes and buffets. You don't want to be someone who gets old. People are saying, well, that guy's, he's really lacking. You know, you don't want to be... But trials have the potency to produce a life that does not lack. He also says later in verse 12 this, he says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So that if you will remain standing and if you will allow the trials to produce the character of Christ in you, there at the end of your life, it's not like, oh, what was all that about? There is a crown of life for you if you will remain standing with Christ. So if there's any desire in your heart for, to be godly, just like I'm appealing to something in your heart, any desire. You think, oh, I've just got I've something. Like just any, like, if there's any modicum of desire to grow in faith, if there's any desire in your heart to be like Jesus, if there's anything in you that wants to be increasingly holy and godly, if there's anything like that in your heart, any desire, that when trials come into your life, you can find joy because those trials have the potency to produce what you deep down actually desire amen amen i was reminded by the holy spirit very helpfully the other day after a, a meeting i had it wasn't the easiest of meetings it wasn't with any of you guys because i know <laughs> i know that because pastors sometimes say what's he talking about is it like a difficulty with someone in the church and what's going on no no it wasn't anything to do with the church but i didn't want oh I, I the holy spirit reminded me of prayers i prayed when i was like 18 when i was first coming to christ that i would know god that's my deepest passion that I would know God in all of his glory and all of his splendor. I just felt the Holy Spirit just remind me of those prayers. Remember, I'm answering the prayers that I prayed. I wanted to then unpray the prayers. But that's like, it was too late. But I knew deep down, this is what I want. I want to know God. And in that place, I can find him. So God grows character in our lives. The second thing, is this that God is actually for you in the trial there's this thing that's so hardwired into our lives because we think that to please God we need to do things it's so hardwired that if we if we're doing well then God will be pleased with us and if we're not doing well in our lives then God will not be pleased with us it's so deep down and part of the Christian life is just trying to understand that God is gracious and kind irregardless of our behavior it's out of his heart that he saves us not out of our life that he looks on us with favor it's out of his heart so we're so hardwired to think if I do well God's pleased me that when bad things come into our life so often we think this must be because God is somehow not pleased with me 
And on the converse, we think if life is all going groovy, then God must be happy with me. Hey, like this year has been blessed. I've got a promotion. I've got more money. I've got health again. Things are going well. I've got a relationship. I'm like, I, all, all glory to God. I am his best, blessed and favoured one. And yet when difficulties come and things start to break apart in your life and you lose a job and you're out of a relationship and you're suddenly struggling through life, what can sometimes creep into your mind? God's not happy with me. It's so hardwired into our thinking. We had this because um, some of you know we're having works done on our roof. And uh, we decided after a lot of discussion, me and my dad, okay, what, what are we going to do? We're going to go for the option of like, we're not going to put a tin roof over the roof while we do these works. We're going to have a tarpaulin. We'll go for it. We'll risk it. And so we do that. And then like about eight days later, we're told on the news that the worst storm in 30 years is coming. <laughs> and like, so I didn't know this sermon, this sermon was coming as well. But deep down in my heart, I was like, why of all the times like we're not doing anything bad here we're just trying to fix a roof and it's like it's almost like god was waiting like okay we're take off the roof bam worst storm in 30 years so literally we had an elder's day at our house which i was very glad of because otherwise I would have been twitching in a corner by the end of the day and then about three o'clock there was a point where a neighbor called and says the tarpaulin's ripping something off so abdullah was there holding the tarpaulin down with these like 60 mile an hour winds, Richard was scaling the scaffolding very wisely. <laughs> Charles, I think, was praying for us below. <laughs> the most sensible one of us. <laughs> Things have like fallen off. I was thinking, God, I'm your righteous one, aren't I? Like, why? You can kind of begin to think, what? Like, those questions come there. If, why is this happening? Why are the trials coming? Why me? Why now? Why do I get this? Why do they get that? Why don't I get this? Why don't they get that? All these questions of why, 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 we think because somehow God is not. And so James counters this thinking and he tells us. He says in verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted or under trial, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts or trials no one. What he's saying, don't think that God is against me in this moment. You've got to count the fact that you may not know why this is happening, but you know whom is your Lord and Saviour and whom it is, is Jesus Christ who was crucified for you. So of all the things that are going on when you go through trials, it is not the fact that God is against you. Because Christ crucified declares that he is for you. Eternally so. Amen? Amen. So I may ask when I get to glory. I probably won't. Why did you send the storm like two weeks after we took the roof off? But I can know that Jesus Christ and all of that is for me. And he's producing something in me that will be. This doesn't automatically happen, by the way, this joy. None of this is automatic. Like, oh, great, trials. Apparently, James says, I'm going to become a very godly version of myself next week. Wonderful. Let me just sit back and wait for the godly version of me to pop out next week. <laughs> because we all know that trials can come into some people's lives and actually it doesn't seem to make them any better. Some people, it seems to make them bitter and self-righteous. It doesn't seem to do what James is saying. So none of this is, is automatic. The word that James uses for trial here 
It's the same word that he uses here in verse 13 when he says, when he is tempted. It's literally the same word. Because the same word can be used for trial, which is this external thing, things that happen to you. And the temptation, the thing that happens internally, they're often bound together, aren't they? Like when trials come, there are actually moments that you do feel the temptation to sin for whatever reason. You might think, well, things are going so hard. I, I deserve this little bit of pleasure here. Or I, I didn't get that from God, so I'm just going to get that for myself. God's not really looking after me here, so I'm going to look after myself there. What James says is you are allowing the temptation, the trial, to produce sin in your life. And when sin is fully grown, he says it brings forth not life, but death. So this is not automatic. When the trials and the temptations from within then come, when you're pressed, you have the choice to walk with Jesus, to walk by faith, to count it all joy, or to allow wrong thinking to come into your mind and think God is against me, in which case you then go right off the rails. I don't know. I think trials are sometimes like, they just, they, they show what's inside your heart, don't they? They just reveal stuff. The, the testing of your faith, James talks about in verse three. You know that the testing of your faith, you're probably going to find this gross. But I think trials are sometimes like, you know, if you've got like zits, spots, you like squeeze them. If you're a 14 year old boy, it's like the best thing. So like, just squeeze that pus out. I'm oh, sorry, I shouldn't have used this illustration, should I? I've lost you. I'll try and win you back in a minute. Testing's a bit like that. It's like pressing. And the ungodliness that's in your heart actually just gets revealed. And you realise, oh, like, I'm not as godly as I thought. There's this, like, pus stuff coming out of my heart. There's wrong thinking. There's, like, ugly stuff in my heart. Oh, I'm actually self-righteous about this. I'm actually bitter about that. I'm actually not in faith about this. And you realise what's there. And when that happens, when the testing comes and your heart is actually revealed to yourself, that is the point, the opportunity that you have to repent and grow. You realise, okay, what do I do with this self-righteousness in this trial? I could hold on to this. Say, yeah. Or you say, okay, I, I sense self-righteousness. I want to repent of this and put my trust in Christ. May this be a moment of expiation, of just pushing this out of my life so that I can grow into wholeness with him. Amen. It's a choice that we all have. So that's the second thing we need to do is count that God is actually for you. And the third thing is this, and maybe the best thing, God has gone before you as well. Because he says this in verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. And this speaks about you and me. But primarily, first and foremost, this speaks about the man, Jesus Christ, who is the blessed man, we're told in the Psalms, who is the forerunner of those who are in faith Blessed is Jesus who remains steadfast under trial. For when he stood the test, he will receive, or he did receive, the crown of life at the right hand of God the Father. So we don't come to a God who is aloof in the heavens, who watches down. God is not asking us to pass a test that he has not passed himself. He is not watching on, saying, are you going to meet my standards? Yes, yes, no, 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 yes, no. He's not. God himself came down in Jesus Christ to walk with us through the trial that is 
life so that he can sympathize with us his brothers and his sisters so that we can pray to him so that when we do go to him he knows what it's like to walk through life jesus is the steadfast one who has gone before us i'm going to talk about lord of the rings so just get that moment out of the way for a second (laughs) in one of the most famous bits when the fellowship are running from balrog you know the moment through the minds of Moriel, yeah you shall not pass <laughs> and they pass this 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 bridge that's like cut into the rock don't they and the fellowship run ahead of gandalf the steadfast and what happens is that when the fellowship run ahead of gandalf what does gandalf do in that moment he stops and he turns to face their enemy doesn't he he remains steadfast on behalf of the fellowship they walk to freedom they run to freedom gandalf remains steadfast and he turns and he tells you shall not pass (laughs) amazing moment (laughs) and the balrog goes down into this just cleft this valley this whatever this huge ravine under the mines of moria defeats the enemy but there's this moment isn't there where he turns and there's that last flick of his whip and it whips round gandalf's ankle and drags him down and so his last words to the fellowship of run you fools <laughs> and the fellowship go free gandalf the steadfast remained in that place so that the fellowship could go free and jesus the steadfast does the same for us he came down to earth to live with us and when the enemy closed in he didn't run but he turned to face our enemy satan sin and death at the cross when in any moment he could have called down 12 12 legions of angels to come and rescue him imagine the temptation that jesus felt to exit from that place in gethsemane no one's even watching no one's there he could have walked into the distance quite happily and yet he remained steadfast for us so that we might go free jesus the steadfast remains imagine all of heaven straining to get down and rescue jesus just the flicker of an eyebrow and 12 legions could have come down and rescued him and he remains steadfast for us and he turns and faces our enemy a punishment that should have been upon us and our sin and he takes on satan's sin and death and unlike gandalf who did not know that he was going to get taken down with Balrog, jesus knew that the only day way to defeat satan's sin and death was for himself to get taken down and get subsumed under the pressures and the trials of all of life and get crushed under satan's sin and death and only then could we go free and yet jesus still chooses to remain steadfast for you so that he could say to you now go and enjoy eternal life run free my friends we have a jesus who has gone before us so that we might experience freedom so the writer to hebrews tells us to look to him this is what we're going to do as we close look to jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of god 
Consider him, Trinity Church London, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted.